Hello and welcome to episode 42 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's eternal search to uncover the multitude of reasons people get hooked by and on this crazy game. My name's Rod Murray, and on this episode, we're delving into the world of golf administration with a slight detour into the world of gender politics. If you're a first-time visitor, welcome. Make sure to check out our previous episodes, either by subscribing or following in your favourite podcast app, or head to golfaustralia.com.au and click on the podcast tab. For seasoned listeners, welcome back for an interview that I found especially interesting. Andrea Watson is the general manager at one of Australia's most prestigious golf clubs, Yarra Yarra, on the Melbourne Sandbelt. Now, being one of only a handful of women GMs in the game, it's natural to wonder what that journey's been like for Andrea, and it's a theme that we cover and return to throughout the course of our conversation. But it's only one part of Andrea's story. From her start as a waitress at the then Peninsula Golf Club to two IC at Royal Melbourne Golf Club, including two President's Cups and a first-hand look at the inner workings of Augusta National Golf Club, it's been quite the golf journey and Andrea's resume speaks for itself. Articulate, intelligent, thoughtful and not afraid to speak her mind, it's no surprise that Andrea is highly respected among peers and colleagues alike. I caught up with Andrea at her office at Yarra Yarra recently, and apologies in advance for some occasional annoying bumping sounds that you'll hear throughout the interview, one of the dangers of recording on the road. So Andrea Watson, the GM at Yarra Yarra Golf Club, my goodness, I'm looking forward to chatting to you, but we must start as we always do by saying thank you for taking the time. The thing about golf is a commitment, so we appreciate you putting in the, uh, the time to do it. It's our jumping off point, the name of the podcast, The Thing About Golf. It's so many different things to so many different people. What is The Thing About Golf for Andrea Watson? Um, I I think there's a range of different things in regards to The Thing About Golf. Um, From my perspective, I look at it from an administration point of view. Uh, I've been in the golf industry for a long time. I started at Peninsula Kingswood. Um, golf club, which was right down at, at the bottom, the time. yeah, it's right. Andrea, right down at the very bottom of the pecking order, fantastic club in Melbourne. Here. Yes, and it was um, it was then Peninsula uh, Country Golf Club, and um, it was a very different golf club then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there for nine years, and I got headhunted across to uh, Kingston Heath Golf Club, and um, I worked with Paul Rack then, um, an amazing person, and mm-hmm. honestly, what a great mentor he was. Uh, a, you know, great man in the industry and to have that opportunity to work with him was really amazing. Uh, then he left to go to Royal Melbourne and I was working with Greg Chapel, once again a great mentor, uh, you know, a real icon in the industry. And um, then from there I um, went to Royal Melbourne. I was headhunted across to Royal Melbourne Golf Club and I was there for nine years and I was asked to assist to deliver the 2011 President's Cup and then stayed on until 2019 President's Cup and what great tournaments they were, so uh, really amazing. And then was asked to take the job here at Yarra Yarra as a general manager and I'm very excited. It's To be honest with you, it's been a very difficult year uh, because I came in um, in the first week of March. Oh, fabulous. And uh, within two weeks we are in COVID. <laughs> Lockdown and 
uh, disaster all around. So we, we were sort of um, flying the ship as we were building it, so to speak. So um, it was it was really crazy. It was a really crazy time, a, a really crazy six months. But um, I was lucky enough to have the support of the general managers of the Sandbelt, um, and we met regularly by um, by um, Zoom every single week, and just mashed out ideas and talked about what each person was doing and and sort of bounced things off each other which was really fantastic having that support was unbelievable there's already about 10 episodes in there each of those rabbit holes we could go <laughs> down for an hour no question about it. just the two presidents cups alone must have been <laughs> staggering where did the golf journey start for you though andrew i don't imagine at school as a five-year-old when people said what do you want to be when you grow up you said i want to be the gm of a golf club how did the golf part start for you um, well, actually, it was by accident. I'd, um, I have six children and I just had my, my last child and my, um, I really wanted to go back to work um, and I'd been in the hospitality industry. So just down the road from where I lived was Peninsula Country Golf Club. And so I just happened to apply for the, a, a job there um, in their dining room and, and they um, gave me the job straight away. You? Had you ever played the game? Anybody no, in your family play no, the game? No. No, no, I didn't, didn't wow. know anything about it. I, I'd come from hotels and those type of things. So, um, no, I didn't didn't know anything about golf. I I wouldn't have been able to tell you what side of the ball, uh, the tee you need to stand on or what an Ambrose was or, or anything. So I was a complete novice to the golf um, business. But my husband played golf and all I knew about that was that every second Sunday he wasn't at he home. He disappeared for hours and hours and hours and hours, <laughs> which is an issue and we'll come to that. And there's some issues for golf to confront with some of those those things as well. It, it might be impossible to answer now all these years later, but can you recall what your sense of golf was as a non-golfer? I'm a believer that golf has an image problem outside of the game. Can you recall what your take on golf was before you were in the industry? Um, I don't think I had any real exposure other than the fact that my husband's golf club sat in the garage and that he disappeared every second week. But other than that, I really didn't have any exposure to golf at all. Um, I um, I didn't really go to any tournaments or I didn't go out and play any games with him. Um, but um, as soon as I started in the golf industry, the, the second that I started um, at Peninsula Kingswood, I had an instant in, interest in it. So we took some of our children out and we would play golf as a family and um, my younger son would hit a ball and he absolutely loved the game. The others, not so much. They, uh, I think you need to get that grassroots thing going with, with children. If they don't have that, they were into cricket and football and all those types of things and they you, they didn't sort of get a love for it later on um, as they got older yeah. um, my one of my daughters my oldest daughter she took to it like a duck to water and she's fantastic right. she she lives in America and they play social golf yeah. so so it's a whole different thing for yeah. her the whole <laughs> trajectory of a bunch of lives changed on Pivoted on the on your employment exactly at, at, at Peninsula there, which is interesting in itself. Did you find the game welcoming, and that's separate from the question of did you find the industry welcoming to um, an outsider? We have our own language <laughs> that we talk in golf, as you would well know now. It, it there's a reason it feels exclusionary to people who don't play because we do have our own media, our own 
heroes as players. We've got our own language, fairways and birdies and greens in regular. None of these things mean to anything to people outside of golf. Did you find it a welcoming environment, the game part of it? Um, I didn't. No, I found it really intimidating. Um, um, from a woman's point of view, um, it's it's very male-dominated, uh, the industry itself, and um, I... Even now, you know, I, I struggle with the whole thing with getting out and playing with the men. I'd much rather play with the women, and um, I don't feel there's so much there's so much pressure um, from that. But no, I didn't find it welcoming in any way, shape, or form. Um, I came into golf very late, and um, I played softball, so I found it really difficult to go from the swing up the top to the swing down the bottom. So I was always topping the ball, and um, I, I found it very frustrating um, to do. And I took lessons from my husband, and I will tell anyone, don't do that. It's the worst thing you can possibly ever do. He's if he was any good, he'd be a pro, Andrea. <laughs> if anyone who's not a pro is not in a position to give you any kind of a lesson about the game. And if we all remember that, we'd probably all be exactly right. Exactly somewhat right. better off. The game itself, did it grab you? It did. From the word, from the get-go, it really did grab me. Um, but I just found that I struggled with it a little bit. And I think if you're not, if you don't take lessons to start with to give you some basics, um, it can be very difficult for you because you find it really frustrating. Um, and we're, when, we, when we play when we're older, we're adapting our bodies differently. We don't have that natural swing that young people get when they just start from grassroots because they just pick up the ball and they they adapt their natural swing to what they need to do. But when you're doing it as an older person, you sort of really have to get your whole body to understand there's a whole different thing. So while I loved it, I found it very frustrating. Yeah, yeah there's a lifetime of movement patterns <laughs> to try to overcome, isn't there, in golf, which is an unnatural move in itself. Kids are great at seeing something on the TV and copying that. They're very exactly. malleable. They're plastic, aren't they? With their, they can do anything. Let's talk about the industry, which I think is probably more important, having now gone from being a non-golfer to a golfer. yes. You bring a perspective that I think many of us have forgotten because that happened not that long ago for you, whereas for me it was maybe nearly 40 years ago I got into golf, so I'm used to just being a golfer. We'll talk about gender and some of those things a bit later because I think there's some important issues there. But just for the game itself, what do you see as the barriers to people becoming involved in the game? And what can golf as an amorphous mass, what can we do about that? Introducing young people at grassroots levels is really, really important. Whether they stay in the game or not is irrelevant, um, but if you can capture them early, it's uh, you're going to get them no matter what because it's, it's such an amazing game and, you know, you look at um, older people and younger people both playing together and, you know, you'll have people that are as young as six years old playing and you can have people as old as 90 playing. It's it's such an amazing game to play right across the board throughout your whole life. And so I don't think that – I think that golf actually um, focuses far too much on that middle age that where they drop off, whereas I think that, to me, that's not important at all. It's just – getting them to understand that it is a great game to start with and if you can capture them in schools and sport and all those type of things, you're going to get them later on because it is such a great sport to play. And I think that's where we we miss the targets. We don't spend enough time with grassroots um, golf. I'm pleased to hear you say it in as much as I think golf makes a mistake in who we target. We seem to have trouble accepting as an industry that we're going to lose people for a portion of their life where they're too busy to do golf. But there's no problem 
with that if you've exposed them early, is there? Because they'll come back later. They will. If you miss them younger, you don't get them later. Exactly. And the mid-40s is probably really the target market for golf. Once kids are starting to be more independent, work things change and slow down, people are in a position to then spend a bit and take a bit more time for golf. And exactly. I'm not sure that we've accepted that. I wonder why that is. What do you think? Um, I think that we feel that there are um, demographics missing out of our membership, especially for private golf clubs. We look at our is membership. Is that true, and we say, Andrew? We, yeah, I, I think that there is, and we do all we can to um, try and um, encourage people of those age brackets to to join. But the, the, the thing is there's a lot of... Um, what would I call them, social clubs around which uh, appeal to that age group a lot more um, and I could name a few of them um, that that actually do that and they, they cater to you pay a, a fee and you get access to particular clubs and you can go and just socialise and play with your friends at one club and another club and another mm-hmm. club and, and just enjoy that part without the really big commitment of it and I think that's that's the area that they need to stay in for a little bit and then move across to full membership once they have the um, the capabilities financially and also time constraints to be able to to do that. So I think that we worry about between the ages of 21 and 40 when we really shouldn't be concerned about it because they're still playing golf. They're just not playing at clubs and, and those type of things. They're very social creatures at that age and that's all they want. As a business model... Does the club, as a notion, still work, the golf club, as we're used to it in Australia? Golf is built on the club model in Australia. You're talking about club membership or clubs yeah, in general? Cl- clubs. Clubs as a membership model. As a, Yarra Yarra is a perfect example and one of the more prestigious clubs here in Australia and on the sand belt. Obviously, there are certain clubs that are more appealing more broadly. This is a premium product, if you want to put it that way. But for the suburban golf club model, the semi-private model, does that, as a business model, does it still make sense? I think it does. I think that people like the idea of community and I think that's what golf clubs offer is a sense of community, being able to come back and socialise with people and have friendships which are broad. They're right across the the spectrum of, of um, business. Um, there's, you know, from doctors to to um, students mm-hmm. and they can all socialise together and I think that golf clubs provide a, a sense of community which is really lovely. I, I think the business model works really well um, and I think that semi-private and private golf clubs um, have different aspects of their business that they they deal with. Uh, a semi-private golf club are dealing with trying to manage their private membership as well as trying to man- manage the public, whereas for private golf clubs, we're looking specifically to be member first and manage our members, which mm-hmm. is a whole different kettle of fish. And I'm sure each model comes with its own challenges, different challenges. <laughs> not, one's not easier than the other, is it? They're just different challenges. They're, to, de- they're definitely different. To, to satisfy a customer mm-hmm. base. I think a GM at a golf club has multiple customer bases to try and satisfy at once and often get pulled in different directions. You're right, right, to, absolutely. Come to, come to some of that later on. I suppose that sort of begs the question, Andrea, when you look ahead, what do you see the golf industry as being? And I'm interested in your perspective particularly because I think we do a lot of talking in golf amongst ourselves about what golf might look like or maybe should be. We often don't get the perspective of our potential and future customers, those outside the game. And I'm intrigued that you came to the game later through work. I really think you bring a unique perspective. (laughs) How might we have got to you earlier? 
It's an interesting question. I think for me particularly, it would have been difficult because I six was kids. a mum and six children and, and all those things will, would have taken up my time no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I don't know that that the golf industry would have got me any earlier than that. But I did spend a lot of time socialising with friends who also didn't play golf and if there was something that was more light-hearted, you know, a lighter type of game where you could, uh, you know what I mean, you look at X-Golf for instance, mm-hmm. you know, what a great innovation and what a great thing to start people off who just want to have a little bit of fun and who don't have a lot of time on their hands. Um, it's it's a great innovation and, and I think that would have probably got me in earlier um, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of video games around now for or golf and those type of things, but you know, I'm, in my day, um, I'm ancient, so, <laughs> so <laughs> there was no, oh, okay. there, was no such, <laughs> there was there was no there was no such thing as that. So I don't know that getting me in earlier would have um, there would have been a lot of things, except probably if they'd introduced it into schools. So had you had you experienced golf at school, you yeah. still might have taken all that time off golf, but it would have been a much easier return. Exactly. It's the sort of thing you can think, aren't you? Exactly, because I did actually start softball at school, and I loved it, and I played it later on too as well. But I think if golf had been introduced mm-hmm. at school, I would have probably loved that yeah. as well. Because golf's got the great advantage that once knees and hips and shoulders can no longer do netball, tennis, hockey, and some of those more intense sort of sports. Golf's a fabulous option for those who have that competitive gene and still want that outlet. Golf's fabulous for that, isn't it? I've always found in talking to people who've come to the game later in life, they almost always say, I wish I'd taken this up years earlier Mm. because it's so much easier if you've had some exposure earlier. I I do agree with that. And I think for women it's different too because men try to – um, whack the, oh. the the skin off the ball all the time. So I, I honestly believe that they they end up by having more hip and shoulder problems than women do because we tend to hit the ball a little bit lighter. We're looking for the ability to be able to hit it straight, not to be able to hit it long. Mm. There are some you know really good female golfers who want to hit it really well, but if you watch the um, professional golfers, men and then the women, and you see how they play, they play very differently. Mm-hmm. The women have such a, a different swing. It's it's a lot slower and it's a lot more fluid in regards to what it is. So I think they te- protect their bodies a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. Women are more sensible, Andrew, I think, is what we've arrived at there. And I, I don't think any of us would, would dispute it. Let's talk about the industry and your path in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I imagine this is probably sometimes an awkward topic. One day there will be a time when we won't talk about the fact that there's a woman who's a GM. But at the moment, you're the only female GM of a Sandbelt Golf Club. What's that journey been like? And I, not to get you in any trouble or tread on any toes, but has it been a different journey for you than had you been a man? Absolutely. Without a doubt, I probably would have been a general manager 10 years ago if I'd been a male. Um, and um, I did struggle in that space a lot because I also had come from the hospitality um, sector. So for a lot of people, they saw me as a hospitality person and not as someone who would be a good general manager. And, you know, uh, in in all honesty, I, I applaud the inside of the board at Yarra Yarra Golf Club because they saw past that and they saw that I would be a really great general manager for their golf club. Um, but the journey itself has been a, a difficult one and it started at Peninsula and, and while I, I will be very reluctant to name names, I did go to someone who was 
um, high up in the golf industry early on and said, you know, waitressing is not what I want to do all my life and I'm willing to put in the hours and do all the study I need to do. Um, and I did all of that. I did my business diploma. I did a um, um, marketing and also graphic design and also HR. I have a master's in HR as well. Um, and I, I put the hard yards in as well as working. But the advice I was given by this particular gentleman high up in the industry was um, a virtually a pat on the head saying, you know, women don't make it in this industry and I advise you to be happy in the position you're in. So it sort of was that journey that started with that and then the push all the way through to try and get um, recognised in the industry, which was really, really difficult. Are we past that now? At no. Least? No, really? we're not. No, we're not. No, I, I don't believe that we are at all. I think that when when um, you have a lot of older board members who are um, looking to engage a general manager, they don't always see past the gender. They see what we're going to have as a strong person to lead us um, into the next um, phase of our, our golf club, and um, they don't. They're not always insightful. So it's it hasn't it hasn't shifted a lot. Um, I think, and then we've got a long way to go. Mm. That's quite confronting, isn't it? How did you feel when that – I can't imagine what it would be like to have that. That's never been said to me, anything like that. I've been told, you know, you wouldn't be suitable for this job or that job for all sorts of reasons. But that sort of condescending, you can't make it because you've got blue eyes, essentially, or brown <laughs> eyes, that great experiment. Or blonde hair. Or blonde hair or whatever exactly. it might be. Exactly. There's two ways you can respond to that, Andrea. You can say, thanks very much, I'm going to another industry. <laughs> or you can decide to stay. I don't know, whether is there an element of prove that wrong or make a pathway for future generations? Why did you choose to stay in the golf industry despite that? Um, I think because I was lucky enough to um, procure jobs in really good golf clubs um, where I was really happy, um, I... Um, I was I was comfortable to sit in the second chair for for a few years, um, and I think that when when I started to apply for general managers' roles, um, in in my opinion, I was uh, more qualified than a lot of the people that actually got the positions. And I applied for one job, um, and it was being. Um, vetted by an ex-general manager um, of a golf club and he um, didn't even give me a, a look in in regards to the first interview stage so I was knocked out within the first round without even getting an interview with the board um, he told me I wasn't ready um, and that the club itself wasn't probably ready for a female general manager so um, those were the obstacles I had all the time and how long but ago I think was that Andrea? The that Th- one th- that incident happened, yeah. Um, six years ago. <laughs> um, wow. So um, by the time mm. I got to rural Melbourne, I was eager to move on to a general manager's position. And to be honest with you, the uh, general manager um, who's um, there now, uh, Warwick Hill Rennie, he was very active in assisting me with that. Um, he really promoted my skill sets in the industry and and um, talked about, you know, um, what I was capable of doing and that, you know, I was really, I was ready to move into a role. Um, but I did get uh, a couple of knockbacks and um, I think I got to the end where I thought, this is probably where I'm going to sit and um, and I just made that decision that that was what was going to happen for me and um, and so I, I thought, well, I've finished up at 
the one of the top five golf courses in the world um, as the second in charge, and I can hang my hat on that. And um, I decided not to apply for any more general managers' jobs, even though I wanted to finish my career as a general manager. So when I decided that I was going to leave Royal Melbourne Golf Club, um, I thought I'd probably just do consulting or go into HR, um, use my masters, and and do something completely different, and um, and look for something probably outside the industry Um, but I was approached by the board here at Yarra Yarra um, and considered that and I'm really glad that I did so there's two very powerful (laughs) things have happened there haven't there you've given up you said that's it that dreams beyond me I did yes and then an olive olive branch is the wrong term but you've had an opportunity (laughs) extended to you not long after two very powerful opposite things happening there what was that timeline that's not a small decision to have that's a career to become 2IC at Royal Melbourne. Globally, it is. you would find thousands of people who would say, I would be happy with that as a career. So there's no, there's no downside of that. But there to, wasn't. Have, to have given up on the notion of going a step further, that must, that's a very big statement to say to yourself, isn't it? It is. And, and also, I think I, I, just, I felt like I couldn't prove anything more to the industry. You know, if I'm I not had good been, enough now, I'm never going to be. Well, exactly that. right, because I'd been the um, acting general manager of Kingston Heath for six months um, in the role of general manager and um, um, assisted them with an $8.5 million clubhouse rebuild project, which I looked after for the six months before there was any general manager there. Um, and then at Royal Melbourne, um, obviously, wonderful Paul Rack. He was sick for six months prior to um, passing away. So I did the majority of his role um, during that time and then for six months afterwards. So um, to prove that, you know, I could run a, a, one of the best golf clubs in the world and still not be able to... Um, procure a job as a general manager anywhere else was was a bit downheartening for me so I just made the decision that I wasn't going to put myself through that anymore so and are you convinced that it's because you're a woman no other reason well if you I would say not not um not to what would I say to build myself up in any way I I want to I don't want to think I want you think that I um, I'm not being humble, but um, my skill sets and my diversity um, is, you know, bar none. I have an amazing resume, and if you put Andrew Watson on that resume, I would have walked into numerous jobs. Um, so that's um, – I do think it was a gender thing. And, you know, it's it's very, very difficult for boards to take on that and say we're going to be one of the first that are going to promote mm-hmm. and put somebody in the role as a female, um, which is a very male-dominated industry. So um, boards tend to be a little bit um, less risk-takers. They they want to um, please the rest of the, of the membership, and they do. They have to please, you know – 1,200, 1,500 members who uh, look at their decisions and say, why did you do that? <laughs> all of that's true, of course. There's a couple of things that's wrong. First, first of all, of course, there's not that many GM jobs running around. <laughs> An awful lot of blokes would have missed out on all those jobs as well, which is what some people would point to. Yes. I think what you're suggesting is probably right, though. There's no question you're at least qualified and to not get to the interview stage of that one you mentioned. Mm-hmm. There's no question what's happened there, which makes me think about, I think it's a bit of a trend now in, you're a HR expert, this notion of blind um, resume or blind job seeking where where resumes turn up with no names, no gender attached. Yes. And decisions are based just on 
qualifications. Is that, is that I heard somebody was in my podcast studio talking about it the other day. I thought it was an intriguing idea. It is intriguing, but the problem with that is that you also have to have that face to face interview because with everybody that you interview, intellectual um, interviewing is really important. You need to have an aspect of it to be able to say, I understand you've got these great qualifications, but I need to speak to you one on one to find out do you fit culturally to the club? You know, will we gel with you? You know, do we feel that you're the right person from a from an emotional fit for for our business? And there's more to it than just resumes. Isn't it, 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 there's a there's a there's so much more to it than that, and it's always going to come to that yeah. um, with that one on one because you just wouldn't engage someone in a position of of such authority without having that. Um, one-on-one aspect of it. And it's a real people role too, isn't it, as a GM? It's You're a, essentially the ultimate people person. It That's is. what you do, deal with people all the it time. It is. I want to back up just a little bit. You mentioned sure. boards taking risks. Mm. Is it still seen as a risk to have a woman as a GM? And, and why, I wonder? It doesn't um, make a lot of sense when you think about it, does it? It doesn't. It, it it doesn't, and and I think that Yarra Yarra looked past that, um, and to their eternal credit, by the way, that somebody has to break the mould and they do. Yarra Yarra for doing that. They do, and and I, I think they looked past gender and looked at qualifications and said, if we want someone in the industry who is. Um, has a lot of sandbelt experience, has a lot of um, general managers' experience. Who should we be looking for? Um, and they and they looked to me, which which was nothing to do with gender. And I don't think that they even look, and I don't think they ever looked at whether I was a female or whether I was a male. They just looked at was I the right person for this club, and and um, and they um, they offered me the role. So Nirvana, let's hope we get to that. All <laughs> golf clubs and the entire industry. I think we're probably a ways away from that because, of course, you walked into Yarra Yarra here, not just COVID, massive course renovation with Tom Doak under global scrutiny. Yarra Yarra is known globally. Tom Doak is known globally. People were interested. So there's a whole bunch of other things going on there. There is. What's that been like? And within all that, I imagine that, like me and several others, have expressed surprise. Oh. There's a woman GM at Yarra Yarra. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there, isn't there? There is. There is. Look, I think that um, a lot of people don't, especially here and now in the industry, especially the sandbelt industry, I think because I was so well known um, through the general managers of the sandbelt anyway, that that was just a natural transition for them. They were all great. They were amazing. They were very inviting and, and I'd spent a lot of time with them, so it was fantastic. But, yes, you're right, um, Yarra Yarra was um, definitely being focused on um, for a range of different reasons. And you, Andrea, and you, <laughs> how's that been for you personally? Um, I don't. I don't know that actually. There, there's been a lot of focus on me, to be honest with you. I, I think. I think the focus has been on the golf club itself, and um, the the things that we're actually doing at the moment, and the the course itself, which is just pure golf. It really is. It's amazing, and all credit to Tom Doak and to the to the committee of the time that made that decision that they would. Um, look back and say, what have we done wrong and how much tinkering has, has occurred and what do we want to do to bring it back to where it should be? And the Alex Russell design is an amazing design and being able to restore the course back to where it was, knowing that they would get a lot of um, member 
you know, feedback, um, both good and bad, <laughs> and all the tree huggers and all those type of things um, was was a, a brave move for them to make. So I, I think that Yarra Yarra, they're, they're, um, they're mould breakers. I think that's what they do. They, they have looked over the last um, five or six years to break the mould and not be what they used to be and um, I think that's to their credit and, mm. and, they, and they've come a long way because of it because they're very visionary and the board's very visionary and they, um, they're very supportive too as well. So, Quite a bit of upheaval for what's a generally pretty serene space, the Sandbell yeah. Golf Clubs of Melbourne. People are, <laughs> we're all guilty of not liking change. There's a whole lot of stuff going on there. What was it like internally at the club? And I'm sure that you would have heard a lot of the feedback. And much of it from the squeaky wheels, I'd imagine. Uh, I think that the membership, um, there was a little bit of a division in regards to the members that didn't want change. And, the course and is I special. Think that members are very attached to golf clubs. They are, they are. And, you know, we didn't just change the golf course. We rerouted it. So they had to learn different aspects of it. And when you're uh, – it's different when you're a social golfer because it doesn't make any difference because you're playing different holes all the time. But when you're a member of a private golf club – you learn aspects of the golf course that nobody else knows and when someone comes along and changes that, well, it's really upheavaling for them. So they, they, they look at it and they go, well, I'm not, you know, it doesn't feel the same for me. Um, so I think it was very, um, it was disruptive for the members, not only for the fact that we were changing the golf course, but also they didn't have um, all holes in play at any particular time. So they went through a lot of change and... Um, to their credit, they did support the, the committee. They saw that the changes were going to be positive ones and that it was needed for the golf course. So um, I think they all were very supportive of that decision and carried through all of the difficult months and in tw- uh, probably nearly two years. Long um, time, isn't it? It, it is. It, ab- it absolutely is. And, you know, that also affected a range of different things, including um, the club's ability to get um, other golfers on the golf course and to have corporate golf and all those type of things which was also going to affect our revenue streams mm-hmm. so they went through they went through it tough yeah. um, to get to the other side but they're definitely at the other side now and as I said it's it's pure golf it's absolutely beautiful out there and everybody who comes to play just loves it and it's it's amazing the amount of um, inquiries we have for membership once they've played golf here. Fabulous. They're just like um, the membership's inviting and engaging. It's a re- really great social club. Um, as I said, Yerry is the community. That's what it is. Yeah. And, and that's what I really love about this club. You've done a brilliant thing, Andrew. You've answered my next question, which was going to be, has it been worth it? I think you've pretty much said yes there. It, uh, Rod, look, I, I have to admit, I, I, I love the, the job and I love the challenges. Uh, the, the president, Danny McGrady, said to me when I took on the role, he said, we're really glad that you're here, but we need you to understand there's going to be some challenges. And um, he reminded me of that last week, <laughs> <laughs> that I had accepted that. So, um, yes, there, there are. But obviously, no one could have ever predicted that COVID was going to be in there and that's been one of our biggest challenges is to be able to manage that um but um it's um fingers crossed it's 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 been it's been exciting it's been challenging but um i've really enjoyed it yeah you have daughters obviously daughters three daughters amongst your six beautifully done well done (laughs) 
How do you feel about the world that they're that we're leaving them? You, you've had we've talked about some of the challenges you've had along like just for being a woman, no other reason, just for being a woman. And every time I think about that, it just seems so crazy. And I'm sure I'm guilty of many of the things that have made the world a difficult place for you to live in, a more difficult place than it needs to be. So we've all got something to learn, obviously. Are you familiar with Megan McLaren at all, the golfer? Yes. She writes quite a bit on Nicole. We had her on the, the podcast. Yes. And we talked about this. Almost by accident, she's become a bit of a lightning rod for gender issues in golf. And she gave it a lot of thought about accepting that sort of role. What are her responsibilities there? Her goal in life is to be the best golfer she can be. There's no other way to say it. There's some distractions with that sort of stuff. Do you feel any of that yourself? Um, I, I, I think um, I feel I feel an obligation to um, assist women in the industry who have struggled, and uh, I think we're our own worst enemies. To be honest with you, uh, I, I think this is one of the things that needs to be addressed: is that men um, don't hold grudges, and they're more than willing to pull each other up the ladder, and they don't they're not concerned about that. So they're always making recommendations and getting other people to come up the ladder. Women have uh, a different viewpoint and they can be quite, um, uh, what would the right word be, insecure um, when they move into senior roles and they tend to push women down the ladder rather than grab them up the ladder and bring them along for the ride. So I think that women are their own worst enemies and I think that's what needs to be addressed more than anything else is educating women that they don't need to be men, that they have... They bring a whole different aspect to business uh, and it's it, it's very unique in regards to what it is, um, but they shouldn't feel intimidated by other strong and powerful women coming up behind them. And what they should do is mentor and encourage them, which they struggle with um, and, and it's, it's to their detriment. And I think that's the main reason why there aren't enough females in senior roles is because we are our own worst enemies. That's true of not just golf, obviously. You only have to look at the whole world, business, politics, industry, everywhere you look. Exactly. Nowhere near near as many women as statistically there should be. Taking all emotion out of it, statistics show there should be more women in there. Um, I I wonder, Andrea, have you got any thoughts as to why that might be? Why women, for want of a better term, why women who make it, might not be interested in helping other women up the ladder as well. Is it a competitive thing? Because No, I think it's an insecurity thing. I think that a lot of women feel that they need to be males, so they 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 change who they are inherently and they try to be tough and and strong and, and all those things that, that are not they're they're not necessarily great women traits. Um, women bring just different aspects to a business uh, um, and and we bring a lot of emotional intelligence to a business which is really amazing and if we can get to the point where we can accept that and not try to be men but actually try to be women we will move forward in leaps and bounds so um, I think that my legacy I would like to see for me is to um, promote more women in the business, to have a look in the industry and see which women want to move forward and how we can mentor them and get them into those roles um, and um, find out uh, where in the industry we're failing with uh, golf Victoria Golf Management Australia, um, Golf Australia, where we are actually failing to look at those aspects of it and to start to look at what women are eager to move forward because um, they may not be 
moving forward for a range of different reasons. And I'll give you a classic example of I know of several women in the industry who want to move forward, but the general managers are more willing to bring up the males in that in their business rather than the females the males are asked to go and play golf the males are asked to go to attend events and these women are not getting asked to do those things so they're the ones that I want to help to move forward and to help them to recognize that they have really amazing talent Um, we're really lucky here because we have not only just uh, a female general manager, but we have a female op- a female operations manager and a female golf pro too, as well. So, um, which is very unique for a golf club. <laughs> it is, Andrew. I'll ask you about perhaps the impact of that uh, in a moment. But overall, are you optimistic about those things you're talking about being more achievable than they were maybe this time last year or five years ago? Are we moving in the right direction? I think it takes it takes people like myself to to voice that and to push that forward because if we don't be those voices for all those other women, then I don't think it will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you take a look at uh, corporate golf days, for instance, and I know for a fact that there are many women in business who are females, but when you have a corporate golf day, 99% of them are males because they're the ones that are being invited to play golf, not the females, and it happens all the time. So we need to do things like um, have a female corporate golf day and we just finished having a an all-female twilight event and those things where um, women can actually be a little bit more recognised um, for what they do, um, which is it, it's difficult because the, the balance is so out of whack. Um, for, for the golf industry, but it's a great sport for females and males. So in truth, it should be completely balanced. I couldn't agree with you more. I've always struggled to understand why. If you're just dealing generalisations, you would think golf would be more appealing to women than many other sports. There's, I think there's been a generational change there with AFLW and soccer and cricket and those sorts of things. And Absolutely. My views, I think, are outdated and we're possibly wrong, but it always felt to me like golf should be one of the more appealing. There's no bashing into others, no running around and sweating. It's competition, Absolutely. you know, very dignified sort of a, what always appealed to me. I was never into those other and sports. And you can always wear some really great clothes yeah, too as well. <laughs> it's never <laughs> been more- my Thing, as you can tell, Andrea, but that's a that's a very – in a business sense, what's the business case for golf having been the way it's been for so long, essentially excluding half of the population from spending any money in the industry? I don't think that – I don't think that we're in an era now where we're excluding half of the um, the population. I think that women need to, to come to terms with the fact that it is an all-in – Cumbersome sport now. So, you know, when we get to the stage where there is no gender, no red tees, white tees, where competition golf is competition golf and you pick what tee you play off and you just play under your handicap, it will it will get to that stage. Um, but it's going to take clubs to recognise and accept that and to do that um, uh, to in order to move forward. Which is... Brings into a night night brings nicely into focus one of the tricky roles as a GM. Your customers are the members, but there's a responsibility for clubs generally and people in positions of authority to lead the way on some of those cultural shifts. That's unlikely to come from the membership. So how do you handle that leading the members in a certain way that change needs to come? Culture. 
it's a really big word in the golf industry, as you would be aware of. Robert. I mean, seriously, it's just it's what we hammer our heads against all the time. Is the um, what members perceive as the culture of their club that they don't want to change, um, and um, it's it's a very tricky subject, and it's it's not going to happen overnight because. Members are members of golf club, as I said before, because of community. For community is right. all about mm-hmm. the culture of the club, and if they feel like it's the right culture for them, they're going to keep coming back again, and again, and again. So you are going to hit your head against the wall a fair bit in regards to the whole word culture, um, because you hear it bantered about every single day, seriously, every single day. So. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I think it's going to be a gradual change. Generational, um, perhaps? Might take a generation? Yeah, and I think that the generations before have made change um, and the generations before that have made change. If you, if you have a look at what golf was like 80 years ago and 60 years ago and even 50 years ago, you'll see that there has been change. And if you look at it from there to now, it's quite radical in Enormous regards to what it is. Um, so I think it's always going to be a very gradual type of thing that happens um, and, you know, understanding that, yes, we we do, as as clubs, we want to instil in, in everybody a sense of, um, pride and um, that comes with things like dress codes and all those type of things but does a dress code with having someone come in in a nice pair of jeans and a, and a, a polo shirt um, mean that they're not going to be a cultural fit or they're not going to play good golf or they're you know I mean there's there's um there's some there's some traditions that need to still be addressed and addressed quickly um, because it is it is hindering our progress um, for those little things that don't really make a difference to culture in any way, shape or form. They tend to be the dumb traditions, don't they? <laughs> the, the, the dress code really I, is – I'm not asking. I, I, <laughs> I know how contentious it is, but it always surprised me why dress upsets people so much. You know, fashion I, I, think it's, I think it's, a, I think it's um, setting a standard yeah. um, so that you can feel like there is a standard for your – club um you know it's it's the same in a lot of businesses when you look at it it's the way that that the uh businesses tell their staff they need to dress whereas it wouldn't make the staff any less better at their jobs if they came in in jeans and t-shirts but it's a it's an image Mm -hmm. and 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 i think that that's really important as well um but i think that golf clubs have a very social aspect to them which is what they don't grasp is that um, I was a member of a golf club for quite a few years and it was just around the corner from where where I lived um, so I, I live far away from where I work so it was really convenient for me I would finish work and then go out and go and play golf but um, if I wanted to go down on a Sunday and take my husband or my kids down to uh, have some lunch or anything like that and I was out, I'd been out shopping and I was in jeans and a T-shirt, well, I was totally unable to drop into my own club and have a bite to eat and, you know, just have a chat to the rest of the members. And I think that's very inhibiting because it shouldn't matter. It's a social... It's the social aspect that we're not grasping for golf clubs. It's to the detriment of the business, and we're going to come to that in a moment. I just wanted to make this one point, which I always feel about 
the dress code is lots of very nicely dressed pe- people have committed heinous acts over the years. It's, it's not a great barometer of what sort of person you are as to, as to how you dress. That's, that's really true. Business, pre-COVID, yes. golf had been in a 20-odd year battle for how to figure out the business model going forward, falling membership numbers, though not necessarily participation numbers, changing cultures, a changing customer base, um, new people coming to golf not wanting the same things that old did, uh, that previous generations had. And golf business was responding because it had to. For its very survival, golf had to change business models. Will that be the driver ultimately of cultural change? The financial realities that you won't get a new generation of members if you continue to do the things the way you're doing them now necessarily. Um, I, I I think um, that's a, that's a really tricky question. Look, I, I I think golf's gone through a radical change because of COVID. Uh, that's that's without a doubt. But wondering looking at why it's gone through that radical change is really important, and I think that's something that the the golf industry is not really addressing. We're seeing really huge spikes in membership. But why are we seeing really huge spikes in membership? Now, my husband's a social golfer. So he has a a group of four people he's been playing with since the day since day dot so they've always played as a group and they've always been social golfers and none of them have ever joined golf clubs but it was interesting during covid three of the four of them joined golf clubs now why did they join golf clubs is the question so i sat down and just had a bit of a chat and and asked well why did you suddenly join a golf club and they said because we didn't have access to the clubs that we normally would have access to so being able to go out and play regularly they were constantly told, no, I'm sorry, we can't, we're, we're totally private now, um, we're only to our members now, no, we don't have any tea times because all the social golfers are t- taking them up, you know, because they were just pushed into those aspects of it. So I think that that change has happened because of the fact that the social golfers don't get access that they got before. But will that change in two or three years' is time? Is it sustainable, this we, boom, this, this is it's, it's, a, it's a really big question to ask is will they stay as members of the golf club? And that's where we have to refine what we do and how we integrate them to help them to understand that it is more than just golf. It's, it's about community. It's about the socialisation of it that comes with golf clubs and educate them that that's the case. So our new members coming in, it's really important for us to understand what we need to do to keep them and how we integrate them as good members of the club too as well. So I don't know that it's going to be sustainable. I think that there is going to be a a reverse at some point in time Um, and clubs will naturally do that for financial reasons. They will um, will start to say we're introducing social golfers once again and that will – that will just naturally happen. So um, it will be very interesting in three years' time to see what this looks like. Do you sense that people in the industry are thinking about that? Oh, of course, one of the great problems of golf, which is also one of its great strengths, is it's incredibly fragmented. We don't have a czar. And a czar would be a fabulous idea. It's me, obviously, not if it was anybody else. But it is a very fragmented industry, isn't it? It's a, it's a collection of private entities all doing their own thing, even at the administrative level. The RNA, the USGA and Golf Australia and all of those things, sometimes to its detriment, but I do think it's also to its strength sometimes. But as an industry, do you think golf is thinking about that 
or have a lot of people in the industry just taken a huge sigh of relief and gone, oh, thank God, golf's back and not given any thought to what's going to happen in three Look, years. I can't talk for the rest of the industry, honestly. I, I don't know what people are thinking in regards to what this boom is all about, but I'm certainly thinking about how sustainable it is, and I've spoken to other people who have their head in the clouds. They just think it's just the best thing since last year. No need to change. Golf's just... perfect. Look at it. It's, it's selling like hotcakes. It must be it's... the perfect product. So, um, so I think there's different schools yeah. of thoughts, but for me personally, I don't know how sustainable it is. Um, and it'll be interesting to watch this space in a few years' time. Whose responsibility is it to drive that? Is it just each, each individual facility, I guess? Um, I think it's about education. It's about understanding uh, what what the reason is. I think Golf Australia have uh, um, a need to do that, to educate uh, clubs about what what this is about at the moment, what this boom is, what's caused it. Give us some really strong data and get some feedback across the board in regards to new members and what they're thinking and what they're feeling and not just individual clubs but right across the board. Some really good data w- it would be really important. I think it's. I really do think that's Golf Australia's responsibility to do that, to help all golf clubs right across the board to, to see you know what direction they're taking and if they need to shift, you know, because it's going to be too late to shift when mm. the change actually is happening. Yeah. That's what we had. That's what mm. we discovered last time. If I could put it that way, isn't it? Back <laughs> in the early 2000s, late 90s, as golf exactly. started to flounder in Australia. Uh, like the GM, Golf Australia has land at its feet every responsibility. I say they should do this and they also should do that and they also should do that. Are they doing a good job, do you feel, in that industry side? Because they've got many masters. Oh, a very contentious question. Uh, it I don't really, mean, it, it feel really is to, to dodge look, it if you like. No, look, look, um, I. You would imagine what a difficult. It's not much different to being here, I imagine, where you have 10 different people who want 10 different things and all of them are legitimate. I think it's a, it's a little bit of an upside down model, business model too as well. You know, the bottom tends to um, dictate what the top needs to do. So I think it's a very it's a very difficult position to be in to to um, not actually have the the real governance over it. And um, I I will probably be a little bit contentious here in saying that. I think when COVID happened, we were looking, all golf clubs were looking for serious direction, um, someone to guide us and lead us and help us because we were in such unknown territory. But, you know, with all due respect, so were Golf Australia. But we all looked to them to say, okay, what do we need to do? When do we need to close? When do we need to open? What do we need to do with that? What do we need to do with this? And we, we found that lacking we didn't find that we had that that um um guidance that we actually needed and a lot of times we were making decisions as groups and then leading the way and then afterwards the announcements would come from golf australia um which mirrored what we were actually doing so um i we i think i found that quite difficult because they are and and you know our affiliation fees are not small fees no. we we as clubs especially the private golf club sectors we pay a lot of money to golf australia and um i'm not i'm not trying to be detrimental to them in any way shape no. or form be derogatory but i i think that 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 lack of um, real leadership is is not there at the moment. Yeah, the clue's in the title, isn't it? Golf Australia. Mm. It is a huge job. It's <laughs> it doesn't make it easy and it doesn't mean they'll always get it right, but no. it is a real position of responsibility, isn't it? It is. Uh, 
I suppose. Uh, what do you see sort of for the future, Andrea? Have you got – if I said to you, you know, what would be your message to other GMs in the industry about all of this stuff, about the industry, about the future of the business, about the role of women and gender? I think we need to – I think we need to um, – um, uh, what would the right word be? Morph um, right across the board uh, as GMs, as as an industry, as um, golfers, uh, everything, our business models. We just need to morph out of where we are and start to recognise that change is not a bad thing and that it's um, it's it's imperative that we continue to evolve and move forward. Um, so... Um, I, I don't know. I I I love and and I did say to you earlier on that I would talk a little bit about Vision Twenty Twenty Five. I love the fact that Golf Australia actually grabbed that world model and made a decision to adapt it to golf clubs and put some pillars in place and so and send it out to all the golf clubs and say, look, we want you to embrace this. And that's really fantastic because that, that's visionary to do that no matter what. But I think a lot of the golf clubs have missed the the what that's all about. So if I talk to probably 50% of the golf clubs, they would say it's about growing grassroots golf for women. And they wouldn't think of anything else other than that. They don't stop to think about the fact that it's about boards and women on boards and about um, staffing and about, you know, I mean, the... The, you have a look at the horticultural industry, uh, the grass growers, and 99% of them are males. And it's really difficult for women to get into those roles, mainly because they're not recognised as people in to do that, but also because the facilities don't allow for it. So there has to be shower facilities, there has to be bathroom facilities, there has to be all those other things that come with it. And they're not built or equipped for any of that stuff and they're not going to build special toilets and special showers to employ one woman so I think we just need to morph and move forward and have a look at everything across the board and just give it a little bit of a shake yeah this is probably an unanswerable question it's beyond the scope of I imagine either of us or in fact we've grappled with these things forever (laughs) what would be different about the industry if more women were in positions of and we could probably just broaden that to the whole world if women were in more positions of power and influence and genuine decision making, how would golf be different? Um, it's a very interesting question well, to ask. Would golf be different? Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know how to answer that. I think that um, women should be given the opportunity right across the board, just um, not because they're women, but because of their skill sets and and women in golf. Um, I think it's it's difficult to go in to a club where you've got 15% of the membership is women and, and, and 85% of the membership is male. There's always going to feel like there's that little bit of an imbalance. So until we get the balance correct, and that's going to take change, as I said before, with you know, um, no gender uh, competitions and no gender um, tees and all those type of things. I think that's going to be what's going to change it. And I think women bring a whole different aspect to, to everything, whether it's 
golf or whether it's business um we just we're different creatures you know we've all read the book women are from venus and men are from mars and we're very different people um in regards to who we are so we all see things very differently but coming together and and sharing commonalities is really important so um i don't think the industry is going to be any better by having more women in it but i think women don't get enough opportunities to to do that that's all yeah and that's that's really about exclusion, isn't it? For no real reason, just that brown eye, blue eye experiment, which I still am fascinated with every time I see. <laughs> Last couple of things, Andrew. You went from I give up, I'm not going to get there, yes. put my dream on the shelf, yes. to here you are now, yes, living a part of your dream. I'm sure your life's much bigger than just your job. <laughs> so, what does the future hold for Andrea? Oh, interesting question. Um, I would like to. Um, be here for a few years and um, leave the club in a better position than I than it was when I started. I think that that's really important for me um, to do. And um, from there, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not thinking that far ahead. I'm just enjoying right now, right here. Um, I'm enjoying being the general manager of of Yarriara Golf Club. Um, and it's it's um, and the experiences that it brings, and um, I'm not looking too far to the future at the moment. Uh, I think as you get older, you tend to live more in the moment <laughs> than in the future. <laughs> the closer it gets, yes, the more yes. you don't want to think about it. Yes. There is, whereas young people tend to live for the future. We we tend to yeah. we tend to be the ones that put down our phones and watch the concert rather than yeah. videotaping <laughs> rather than it. Video and never watch it again <laughs> down the track. Well, six kids and all these years. And, Santa administration, you'd be well due for early retirement if that's what you chose to do. <laughs> I wanted to close by asking you about, you mentioned the name earlier on, Paul Rack. Yes. Lots of people listening to this podcast would have known Paul. Mm-hmm. A genuinely legendary figure in golf administration, which is no easy thing to achieve. I'm yet to meet anybody who's had a bad word to say about Paul. Perhaps just talk a little bit about him. It was there was a very powerful time when he passed. I, I I remember seeing some of the pictures. His funeral was enormous. They couldn't fit people anywhere near the place. Mm. Talk about perhaps Paul. And whilst I I would doubt he, having met him, would have been deliberately trying to make the industry – his legacy is quite extraordinary, isn't it? It is. Uh, Paul was a very unique person in the fact that he was um, authoritative and humble. And and to find that mix of somebody who can be both of those is is very different. Uh, and he was quietly spoken um, at board meetings. He didn't actually say a lot. He would just listen and wait for the board to ask him a question. And then he answered it with absolute authority every single time. But he didn't interject. Um, he always knew everything about everybody. Paul, Paul had a, um, not many people know this, but Paul actually had a photographic memory. So he was great in regards to um, recognising people and he would meet people that he hadn't seen for five, six, seven years and he would say, you know, how are you, Joe, and how's your wife, Mary? And just <laughs> and he was known for his legendary handshake, which was, which was you know, but Paul came through the, the hospitality industry as well and he recognised that there were talents out there that didn't necessarily come from the business sector but actually um, were people who could work their way through the business he was amazing to work with his 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 philosophy was we're in the business of member satisfaction nothing more nothing less and if we can't achieve that then we're not doing our jobs effectively 
uh, Paul and I became very good friends many, many years ago and we developed a very strong friendship. We were, we were good friends up until he passed away, so for 15 years. Um, and it was it was devastating um, to see him um, in the last year of him, you know, just suddenly cool. his whole body just eroded and, and um, it, was, it was really, really tough. But um, I think the thing about Paul was that he was one of those people that if you went to any type of meeting, whether it was a GMV meeting or a GMA meeting or a Golf Australia meeting, he would look for the person that was new and he would go straight up and he would introduce himself and he'd say, you know, I, I see I haven't seen you before, you know, who are you, you know, what are you doing? And I, I can assure you that a lot of the golf managers have had that experience with him when they first came in to actually say they met Paul Rack because not because they met him but because he, he met them. So, um, and and he, he always had that way about him um, and he's – Authority was very, very quiet. Um, I can I can remember when I was out playing golf and I was still quite new to the game and he was telling me, you know, you need to get lessons and those type of things. And we played in a couple of GMV golf days and I was still topping the ball every now and then. And I, if I topped the ball, I'd look at him and he'd just look at me and he'd just tap the top of his head and he'd go up and down like this and then he'd walk away. And that was his whole thing was, and it was so frustrating. I was like, oh, I know I'm dumping the ball. <laughs> but he just had a very quiet, gentle way about him. But with that wonderful air of authority that when he spoke, people just knew um, because he was just so knowledgeable. He just knew this industry inside and out and back to front. And getting his um, Order of Australia medal um, was wonderful for him. And he is such a he was such a humble man that when he was put up for the uh, um, Order of Australia Medal, he actually said, "Oh no, I don't think I want that." <laughs> That's how humble he was. But um, he did get it, it, isn't it? Yeah, he, he, he did get it posthumously, obviously, because yeah. he passed away um, four days before it was presented. So, um, but just a just a, a very unique and wonderful mm. person. As the GM at Royal Melbourne, that's not just being a GM at a golf club. It's an internationally regarded, and it's a uh, it's a bit of a player in the international golf scene, isn't it? Uh, his impact is much broader than just the club, the Sandbelt, or Australia, isn't it? His impact on the game. It's quite extraordinary when you think about it. it the is. influence that position holds at that golf club. We're very lucky in Australia to have Royal Melbourne, I think. It's I such totally a agree. beacon of... Of the game, it uh, is here in Australia. It is, and it's 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 amazing because it's it is a, such a world renowned place that um, even as the second in charge of, of Royal Melbourne, I would I've travelled the world, and when I went to other golf clubs and said. I work at Royal Melbourne Golf Club. Um, it was amazing. The doors yeah. that it opened, you know, people just were like, wow. They were just blown away and they would ask you so many different questions. But it's interesting because Paul really wanted to promote people in the industry. So whenever those type of things happened, um, he was always quick to say, well, I want to send this staff member or I want to send this staff member. He never put himself in that front limelight to do those things. Um, and when... We had um, at Royal, we had the Asia Pacific Amateur Championship, which was run by Augusta and, and the RNA. What an amazing tournament that was. Uh-huh. I, I can't even begin to tell you what it was like working with Augusta um, in regards to that. But they actually invited a group of, 
of Royal Melbourne people over the year before to experience the Masters as their guests for five days. And Paul actually put me up to to attend um, rather than himself because that's the sort of person that he is. Did you know? I did. Another episode there, Andrea. What was that like? I... One of the most amazing experiences I've ever had in the golf industry because um, I met the tournament director, David Benny, um, because I was working with him for the Asia-Pacific Amateur, and I got access to everything. So they took me everywhere and showed me inside the clubhouse and the kitchens and the wine cellars and so much things that not even... I don't know many people that actually got that, but to be their guest for five days was unbelievable and something I will never forget. No, that's five, that mm. is genuine five stars. It's a whole that's, story that's, in that's itself. Six story, yes. <laughs> I, I could imagine there's two things I wanted to ask you about to finish up. One of them was uh, just on that Asia Pacific, I know it was special because as the media, we were allowed to dine in the clubhouse and we could even get cappuccinos. Normally, as the media covering a tournament, you get those machines that you pop that. that but at the, the Asia Pacific, you could, go and you could order a cappuccino. Is that the top? Is that that's top as, for that's media? As good that's as, as, as good as it gets. We, in Australia, in the media, generally at tournaments, we dine on party pies and sausage rolls. Right. That tends to be the fare. It has okay. actually improved in fairness in recent years, but that's tended to be the, the, uh, the I, way I have are. to say, uh, the media um, tend to um, – the President's Cup in 2019 was it serious. Seriously blew me oh. away. It was Jeff Shed times three with yeah. everything you could possibly imagine inside it. The, the the layout of it and you know what was inside it was just world world class. And the the President's Cup, they do it. They just do it world class. And to have that tournament twice and to do that tournament twice was just an unbelievable experience. And I think people forget how prestigious that tournament actually is and how lucky we are to have had it, you know, twice at one of the best golf courses in Australia. So Indeed. Behind the scenes though, what was it like? It was it was really good, actually. They they were so organized and they had such a big team around them. They really did and, you know, just um working with their team of people um every single day for six months um solid was was amazing. They nothing went wrong because they didn't allow anything to go wrong. They were just very good at what they did and, and they they knew they were staging a world class event and they did it really, really well. So I loved working with them and, you know, we built good relationships and those type of things as well. Mm. Well, what a journey it's been for you already, (laughs) Andrea, in this game. I'm sure you didn't expect any of this when you applied for that job at Peninsula Kickfoot. <laughs> no, it's 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 um reflecting back it's it's been um it's been amazing and I, I you know sometimes pinch myself to think where I was to where I am right yeah. now and and um remember how lucky I am. We all think we're in charge of our line, own lives, don't we, until we look back and realise that in fact something else is driving it because this was never part of the plan where I've ended up here. Exactly so right. It's been fabulous to catch up with you today. And you I too. must come back and do all 10 of those other episodes <laughs> that you've, you've started the journey on today, but really appreciate taking some time, Andrew. It's been lovely to meet you and best of luck. Thank forward. you so much, Rob. Quite the story there, I'm sure you'll agree. And thanks again to Andrea for being so generous with her time. And can I also recommend if anybody hasn't done so yet and you get the opportunity have a look at the new Yarra Yarra layout. Tom Doak has done some fabulous work down there on the Melbourne Sandbelt. Well, that's episode 42 done and dusted, but I hope you've made the effort to become a subscriber because on episode 43, John Huggan continues to thumb through his impressive contact book 
and brings us a discussion with three-time major winner and Ryder Cup captain, Padraig Harrington. That's next time on The Thing About Golf. <laughs> 